Greetings, everybody, and welcome to Brace. On today's podcast, Paul and I discuss the first two books in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. The first book is entitled, Right and Wrong is a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe, and book two entitled, What Christians Believe. Paul and I have a discussion on religion, using mere Christianity as just a starting point. We hope you enjoy This is your host, Paul. Today we are going to be reviewing the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I found this book to be quite an interesting one given the times that we're living in right now and the times that it was written for. This book is based on three broadcast talks that C.S. Lewis gave during World War II. One of them called Broadcast Talks, one of them called Christian Behavior, and one of them called Beyond Personality. That took place in 1942, 1943, and 1944. He ended up transcribing these into books and then wrote one extra one that he said he would have liked to give, but given the brevity and and what he was able to do, uh, he felt he couldn't quite put it all in, and then published that book as Mere Christianity. And so it is split up into four books, and today Tommy and I are going to be reviewing each of them, and we're going to be talking about what our takeaways were from this book. I found C.S. Lewis to be one of the best users of the metaphor that I have ever read. And throughout this book, he takes us on a journey to, at the end, understanding what Christian belief stems from and is all about, largely through using logic and metaphor to make his point. So Tommy, the first book is called Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. I wanted to see what were the things that stuck out to you in this portion of the book, and where would you like to kick us off on that front? To me, Paul, the first book is really all about the law of human nature, or he he writes it in a few different ways, the law of right and wrong, the law of human nature. But what this means is there exists a sort of morality that we all somewhat understand. One of the ways, I mean, kind of in the first section that he describes this, uh, is that people will say things like, How do you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. And what I understood as he was trying to say is that these are appealing to some sort of standard, a standard that everybody supposedly knows. And I'm probably not describing it perfectly, but that's kind of to me what the what the first book, so to speak, was about. Well, that's yes, I I agree with you. That is the beginning of the book. What he's trying to do is outline that there is a moral law. Uh, One quote that he has there from that section that I found to be illuminating was, you know, if there are two instincts in conflict and there's nothing in a creature's mind except those two instincts, obviously the stronger of the two must win. But at those moments when we are the most conscious of the moral law, it usually seems to be telling us to side with the weaker of the two impulses. So what that's saying is, the moral law is something that we have inside of us as humans and it is innate and it is knowable through our actions and through our conscience. So when we are faced with a decision and we are drawn in two directions, usually the way that we are supposed to go is the way that is less attractive to us. And I find, you know, when there are a million different opportunities, you know, that we could talk about, but say, you know, you're a college student and you have not studied for a class as much as you would like to. You have two competing interests when all of a sudden you are, you know, walking into your exam hall to take your exam. You have the opportunity to face down the consequences of your actions and do your best with the knowledge that you have, which has the interest that tells you, okay, be honest, be truthful, etc. Or, you could aim at an opportunity to get a higher score in that exam by using dishonest means, by cheating, by manipulating the exam somehow. You and I both know which of those the moral law tells us we need to follow, but we also know probably which one of those urges, especially say it's an online test, say you don't have any real likelihood of consequence for the cheating option right? Because a lot of times in school, you are going to have a consequence there. Which of those urges is, is stronger? Which are you feeling is the easier option for you? And which does the moral law tell you to follow? 
follow. I found that section to be really compelling because it, it seems to be innately true in almost anything you do. The harder option or the less attractive option is the option that the moral law would tell us to go with. I think you're pretty pretty right on that. And uh, kind of what C.S. Lewis says makes a lot of sense there. There is this sort of feeling that we have that we know what's right, we know what's wrong, but oftentimes we choose the wrong path, even though we know we shouldn't. And it's an interesting perspective or point of view. Well, and the thing about it that I think is maybe the most interesting and, and not quite the conclusion to this chapter, uh, to this to this book, I should say, but one of the big points that he draws is that as humans, we can observe and test and know things external from ourselves through observation, and we can know a lot of things about the universe. But what we're talking about here is one of the only things that we can know not from testing, but from internal experience. That is, you know, there's only one thing we could ever learn from other than from external observation, and that one thing is man. We do not merely observe men, but we are men. And in this case, we have, so to speak, inside information. We are in the know. Uh, he, he explains that, you know, if we were outsiders looking in at how someone acts, we would not be able to identify that they are following or not following a moral law. But as moral actors, we are able to know ourselves that there is a moral law and that we are at times following it and at times not following it. Did you have any thoughts on, on that section or am I, am I phrasing that how you would? You're probably phrasing it better than I would. <laughs> but I would say kind of as he continues on this this kind of logical pathway that if there does exist this moral law, where does it come from? And I think that's his first introduction to something greater than us. What's interesting, though, is he doesn't, you know, he, ma he makes note of, you know, I'm not saying that this is specifically one religion or another, but it's that this moral law because we have it, it has to come from somewhere. And he makes some allusions to different civilizations and, and different kind of rules that have been set up. And how do you judge, you know, one being better than another? Or I guess what's more moral, right? We compare the bad, quote unquote, civilizations, or I guess governments, compared to others that are, again, quote unquote, good. So how can we as men, or I guess as humans, compare those and say one is greater than another without there being an inner sense of what is right and what is wrong. Right, an inner standard that we're referring back to exactly. Well, and I, I was curious as to your perspective on this part of it. Basically, this linchpin that he then turns on, which is since there is this internal perspective that we have a sense of right and wrong and that comes from within us in a way that we didn't create it. And it seems that humans at all times have had this sense within them and no person or society or, you know, power that we have here on earth created it. It is a part of consciousness. That linchpin of turning and then saying, therefore, there must be something that created that and put it within us. And likely, you know, the, the conclusion there is that created us as well. Do you find that to be persuasive? I mean, because, I, and I'm asking you this, because coming into this talk, I knew that I was a Christian, and I understood that you wouldn't necessarily have identified yourself that way. So throughout, I'm just curious, if you read the book and you agree with it all the way through, at the end, you're a Christian. <laughs> so if you are there, that's wonderful, and I'm excited to know that. If you aren't, I'm curious where the break is in the logic, because I think he lays out the logic from, you know, basic information about what it's like to be human, and it follows all the way through to Christian life. At least on this, on this first topic of, you know, the moral law, it's definitely a persuasive argument. I'm not sure that I've deeply enough looked at the entire logical pathway. I think there are possible arguments that can be made against a you know a, a creator inputting this into us i'm sure a evolutionary scientist or might might say that this this internal law has essentially been selected for in order to move us further or those that had that stronger ideal or at least were able to 
see what was right versus what was wrong and then make the decision that that may have influenced if they could continue to procreate and and move forward i can see how there is some argument there i i guess but i don't find that to be overwhelmingly compelling just because natural selection as a law isn't universal and what we're talking about here is a universal experience so you would find and i guess you know you can make the argument sure there are serial killers there are people that fully abandon the call of internal right and wrong my argument is just that they have always been and i i I don't know i don't find that to explain the whole story because then basically what you're implying is that morality is the sum of hundreds of thousands of years of human development and what i'm saying is if if we understand morality someone two thousand years ago should understand morality the same and someone a hundred thousand years ago that was existing in you know mesopotamia or one of those places even though their laws didn't reflect it yet because they hadn't gotten there the reason we have gotten where we are now with laws and with understanding is because even back then they had the internal knowledge that i am worth something and and my actions matter and these things are right and these other things are not right so basically, you know, you say you haven't thought about the pathway all the way, all the way through. I, I, that's what I'm most excited about with this is challenging you on all these points, because if you accept this premise and this premise and this premise and you go through it, like I said, at the end, you find yourself at Christianity. And I, I imagine that, you know, as you were going through the book, I bet towards the end, you still found yourself agreeing with just about as much as you did at the beginning, even if it was more from an external view then, you know, hey, this is this is the reality of what I've known in my life, but saying, hey, yes, that makes sense why Christians would believe that given A, B, and C. Am I am I right about that? I would say definitely it uh it's a persuasive argument that C. S. Lewis puts together. You know, I, I still have my own logical arguments in my own head. Well and, uh, at the appropriate time if it makes sense, throw them out there and if you know if it's specifically a logical argument contradicting the logic that C.S. Lewis used, let me know, because that's that's the most interesting point. And I'm not great on my feet compared to, you know, some of the great authors of the 20th century, <laughs> I don't think. But maybe I can put forward some, you know, uh, some disagreements there. Well, um, I would, uh, go ahead. I mean, just going back on kind of the last thing you discussed, people thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago, do we know that this morality was the same? Uh, like you said, I mean, the laws may have been different, has there been some sort of progression? Because I would say even in the past 20 years, it seems like we're a lot more tolerant than we have been in the past. That's It's an interesting choice to say the last 20 years, uh, because actually, do you remember what C.S. Lewis says about progress in this book? I don't have the exact page number, but he references progress and says, Progress is only progress towards an end goal that you actually want to achieve. So what progress have you seen in the last 20 years specifically that is aiming at an end goal that you're really excited to achieve? What is, what is that end goal that we've been aiming at? That's, that's another good argument. But I would say that in general, many of the metrics in life have gotten better, at least in, in the past hundred years. I think people living longer. I know that's not specifically a, a morality thing, um, but violence has decreased. I think we have more tolerance for certain ways of living, not pushing our own beliefs onto others or, I guess, forcing these things. I know are that's. You, are you speaking about America or are you speaking about the world? Oh, well, I think in general in the world there has been less violence. It. I'm not saying it's perfect, but... I, I don't know that worldwide that there has been a noticeable change in in that in the last 20 years at all. I mean... I, I could be totally wrong then. Just, just to throw one metric I, I know of out there, um, you could take like the US and all of Europe and China and Australia and like all of these significantly populous areas and add up the murders that happen every year in all of those countries and it is still less than the murders that happen every year in Brazil. Wow. You know, and it's like that's that's in that's including, you know, Chicago that's got, you know, more people died since 2016 than than American, you know, military members died in Iraq in the entire time we wow. were there. Um 
so all of that is to say these these movements that you're seeing or these this progression that you uh, are seeing is perhaps a bit more superficial and again I, I ask you the end goal that you're saying we're getting closer to is that uh, a violence-free world I think that is an overall goal that I would like to see I understand why you would want to see that goal I also know that it is impossible because human nature will persist and violence is a natural part of the human life I mean did you ever get into a, a fight in grade school or middle school or high school I I mean there was there was one but it was not really even a, a fight per se I same with me just one what not really a fight but for me, it was like third grade. It was like nine years old or something like that. So was that something that the culture could have taken out of me? Because I would definitely say that was something that was bound to happen. And the goal that we're aiming for in a violence-free world is a world without human nature in it. And that, I don't think, is a world that is worth aiming for because we know we cannot eliminate human nature. Okay. Well, where do you think violence comes into human nature? If we're dis discussing... Uh... Free will. Yeah. I, I. Well, that's something I think we'll actually discuss uh, a little bit later on in the book. But in book three, when he's talking about faith, specifically to, to Christians, and discussing not exactly what non-Christians may may not understand, uh, as he kind of put it, it at least seemed that maybe in my perspective is, you know, from from someone who would not necessarily call themselves a Christian at this moment. But what to me it seemed like he was saying was that everything good that you do is really you giving back to God or God through you. And to me that seems, there seems like a, a little bit of a paradox between the free will and everything everything that you do that is good or you know moving towards that perfection that's god through you and i'm i'm curious how you how you parse out the difference between free will yeah. and god is all that is good through you in a sense does that is what i'm saying at least sure makes sense yes yes that I understood what you were saying. What the listeners they'll have to tell you whether or not they they understood what you were saying. But let me. I had one thing that you basically what we were talking about a second ago really lines up well with how C.S. Lewis ends the first book, uh, which is saying, "In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either tr comfort or truth." only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. Most of us have got over the pre-war wishful thinking about international politics. It is time we did the same about religion. So when you're looking for the comfortable answer, you likely aren't going to find a, a real answer at all. You'll, you'll end up in a, in a bad place. But going back to what you were asking about the free will of, you know, whether it's God working through you or it comes from God. Also during the book, C.S. Lewis does a really good job of, to me, showing the relationship between man and God, which is people were created for a purpose, and that purpose was to live with and through God. So the truth is, even if you and I do the right thing, all that means really is that we are acting in right accord with God's plan for us. So God has a plan for us. We can choose to act in accord with that, or we can choose to turn away from that. And he kind of gives a, a picture of an internal, uh, an internal life, but an internal thing that can be seen. And whenever we act correctly, we are adjusting it a little bit more to be aiming at God and aiming at who God wants us to be. And every time we act incorrectly, we turn away from God, we are deforming that interior selves a little bit. And I think that is how I square free will with, you know, uh, God is the reason we're doing the good. 
because he gives us a longing to feel fulfilled. And that fulfillment in the end comes from how much we are turning towards God in all of our actions and everything that we're doing. So it doesn't feel contradictory at all for me to say, right now I can choose to do the right thing or the wrong thing. If I'm doing the right thing, it is through God because he created me to do that. And if I do the wrong thing, it is not through God. It is, it is turning away from God. It is using my free will to deform myself. So what well, does that sound reasonable? That's, that's how I would be able to verbalize my understanding of free will there. I think that was put very well. I, I like the, the kind of way you put it. So let me, let me kind of phrase it back just to see if I'm understanding exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And maybe not exactly, but you know, you can only get so much through conversation and not reading each other's minds. But essentially, moving towards God, or I guess what God would want us to be, the only way that can be done is through God. And in doing things against what that, that kind of perfect aim is, you are not acting through God. And in a sense, that we have the free will to choose which which path we move through but if we choose the path of you know kind of following these rules uh moving towards perfection in a sense then it is all through god with which you do that yeah yeah exactly and and okay how again the you know i don't necessarily understand the theology behind it but i think the way that he explains even you know how someone acted before the time of Jesus from the Christian perspective, because, you know, Jesus is the linchpin of history in Christianity's mind. The resurrection changes the whole deal with how we have the relationship with God. So before that, how people would act, not having the rules that, you know, Jesus kind of laid forth, how could anyone possibly act right in that time? And that still is, God still gives us the internal call of right and wrong. So even before the rules were ever written down by any institution and said, hey, here's, here's the list, we could know them through our instinct. And so that, that to me is the clearest example of like what it means to say God is working through you or you are choosing the path God laid out because you can feel it, right? When, when you purposefully do the wrong thing and you know it's wrong and you do it for a selfish reason because you want to, you know, get this little fulfillment in the moment, you know, at that time, even if, you know, you haven't been told yet, even if you're a, a six-year-old and you're just stealing a piece of candy or you're just telling a little lie, you have that feeling of guilt. You know that that was the wrong choice. And even though you, you probably don't intellectually have the understanding of why you feel that, that was, that was a part of, of who you are from, you know, uh, the inception of your being. Interesting. So we're definitely kind of all over the place, but what would be... We definitely are. <laughs> where, what was the, if you have any to, to list offhand, what were the big takeaways from the second book? Um, you know, I thought the titles of the chapters were really interesting. We've got like The Invasion and The Shocking Alternative and The Perfect Penitent. He, he kind of goes through the deal from okay, there's a God to here's how Christianity was created type thing. I think one thing that was interesting was his argument against Jesus being solely a man and just a wise, I guess, teacher, moral teacher. This is a, this is a very famous... Uh, oh, yeah. You know, you've heard that before, the three L's that you have as the options, right? Uh, I believe... Well, I, I'm not sure if I know it in that way, but I, I have the, uh, the section if... If you want me to read it real quick, feel free to read it. But the idea is if you know that the gospels were written in truth, there are only three options for who Christ could have been. He could have been a liar. He could have been a lunatic or he could have been the Lord. I see the, the section that I've seen kind of as I was doing some more research outside of out of the book for it was I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So I know it was kind of a, a longer section, but it kind of makes sense, right? If these other people believed and saw what he was doing, and yet still still didn't want to believe that he was God, then logically, they must just think him you know, a lunatic or a liar. You can't think of him as just a moral teacher. Well, and that's, you know, Islam has Jesus as one of the high prophets, you know, not as high as Muhammad, their, their main guy, but he, he's like the third, you know, highest ranking of the prophets. And to me that, that idea is just, you know, absurd because how can someone say that he's the son of man? How can someone talk about his kingdom and, and you say, no, he's just a prophet that, that to me doesn't, doesn't square at all. So yeah, I, I like that section as well. I'm trying to find a, another section, and maybe it wasn't in this one, um, but it was about, I think it was like watered down uh, Christian. That's oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's near the very beginning of this book. It's the beginning of chapter two, the invasion. I will tell you another view that is too simple. It is the view I call Christianity and water. The view simply says that there is a good God in heaven and everything is all right, leaving out the difficult and terrible doctrines about sin and hell and the devil and redemption. And he kind of talks about in that section, a lot of people have the idea of trying to basically make religion simple, as if religion were something, you know, uh, we invented and could be made simple and not something invented by God, and isn't his statement about certain quite unalterable facts about his own nature. So when you try to simplify God down to a one-sentence you know, uh, phrase or, or being or, or something like that, it just doesn't add up because he is so much deeper than that. Did, did you enjoy that section? Did you find that to be, to ring true? Well, I, I kind of found uh, that was kind of what I wanted to believe when I was younger, that, yep. you know, there was no devil, right? Like the argument I always kind of made was, you know, if, if Jesus died for our sins, then why isn't everybody saved? Like why, and maybe maybe that's not necessarily untrue, but I don't know. It was always something odd right. for me that I well, kind of thought. And, and that's, I think that's something that people, a very lot of people go through is is that, you know, viewing God as good and, and yeah, Jesus saved us, then everyone should be saved. And, and the reality, like you said, maybe that's that's not untrue. That's completely true. He died for all people. The asterisk there is we have to accept that and die with him you know we have to accept our crosses and and live that out uh, otherwise we are rejecting the you know the olive branch that he gave us saying hey come you know join me in heaven that can only happen if we also accept you know the the burden of christianity of of living out that ethic uh, otherwise we are rejecting that saving grace that he gives us. Uh, and one comment on that section that I want to bring up as well is the view that Christianity has in common with dualism, which, you know, that dualism is basically the idea that there is a good power and a bad power, and they are equal and competing in the universe. So some people, you know, who might call themselves, uh, Satanists or devil worshipers or anything like that, maybe just viewing themselves as consecrated to the other power. Uh, but what Christians view it is that there is a dualism with this, this universe and it is at war, but it's not a war between independent powers. It's a civil war, a rebellion, um, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the, the rebel. So when people ask, why is there evil in the world? Why does God allow X, Y, Z? Um, the answer is that we are in an area that God created, but God has, you know, 
basically lost that territory to the devil through our own turning away from him. So then, you know, in this section, he also kind of goes on to say, um, that's why when you decide to turn to God, you can't just kind of turn and say, well, you know, I, I've always been one of the good guys. Um, you have to, you know, have that moment of apology and of repentance because you have been an insurrectionist in his kingdom for, you know, as long as you've been, you know, not turning towards him and your actions every day. So do, do you find that, do you like how I put that? And do you find that to be um, a, a compelling argument as well? I think so. I, I think that that kind of makes sense. Um, it makes sense. Let's, uh, I don't have too much more to say on that. Okay. Well, then what else should we talk about from this book? Are we, are we on to Christian behavior? Well, yes and, yes and no. I wanted to, something kind of popped up into my head, and I wanted to get your opinion on it since we're discussing religion. Okay. So it, it kind of got, got popped into my head as we were talking about, you know, do you accept that olive branch? And yes, we're all saved, but you have to accept it, right? Have you ever heard of the the little the matrix of believing or not believing, and if he's real or if he's not real? <laughs> um, maybe maybe not put in those terms as a you know a two by two, okay. but I, I think <laughs> I know where it's going. Yeah. So, I think there. I'm not sure who made the argument, but there's a sort of logical argument that you know if you believe, and you know whether he's real or not. Now you're, you know, you're good or, you know, what, you wasted a little bit of time. It doesn't really matter. But if you don't believe and he is real, then now you have dire consequences. Right. So, the, right. To expand on that a little bit, the if you are a believer and you're wrong, the consequence, you can say wasted time, but I would say anyone that has lived in that quadrant for any amount of time lived on the on the believer side of things would say no even you know when i can't hear god's voice or even if you know sure he turns out not to exist me following those tenets has ne has never made my life worse you i know, see what you're I, saying I think, so uh wasted time i think that is the common perception of like oh i should you know i had all had all those sunday mornings i could have done something else with it's like <laughs> no really i think most christians feel that the uh, rest and renewal every Sunday is a, is a very important part to their week that they wouldn't feel the same without. Um, and yes, if we're right, then the result is eternal happiness. So that's, that's a really big upside for us. Uh, but exactly, on, on the other side of the, of the square, if you are, if anyone is right in saying that there is no God and they act that way, I, I would still argue that they have to deal with a lot of suffering in this lifetime by having that internal contradiction of following selfishness, even though it often ends up not feeling good. So there is still consequences when they're right. And if they're wrong, then they have eternal pain. As right. the, <laughs> so like the, the stakes on the right and wrong are, so high it, it seems like to me with with that uh, example well okay so i guess where i kind of wanted to go with that and I, I appreciate you kind of expounding upon it was if you just take this argument and you say well i might as well believe do you think that's true belief right like do you do you think that he, all right well i'm gonna play the odds right like you know i well, he talks about that a little bit too on the fake it till you make it type thing. Like if you, if you don't have that, if you've never had a spiritual experience, I was talking with a friend and, you know, I asked, do you know, ha have you had a spiritual experience or do you know anyone that has? And he answered no to both of those questions. And so when you're trying to get someone or, or if you're considering taking that step, if you have never felt anything in that realm. I mean, what does that step even mean? How, how is it possible for you to act that out uh, when you have no experience doing that? You know, it's like 
uh, stepping on the stage for a, for a ballet recital and you've never put on, you know, uh, the, the dang shoes before. It's like, how are you going to do anything? That, that absolutely doesn't make sense. But that's why he says, act as if it's real for a while. Fake it until you make it. Try your best to follow the rules, to do what you're supposed to do, to act like this is the right thing. And you will find very quickly your life changing and, and, and your, yourself developing very quickly in that arena. So I think just like anything, I mean, you, you can go to the gym and you can lift and you go home and you look in the mirror and nothing changed. And you can do that again the next day and the next day and the next day. At the end of the week, you can look at the mirror and you can look at the scale and see no difference. But you are getting stronger. Um, and so I think, I think it's the same thing with belief. Um, you know, to, to answer your question directly, do I think that playing the odds can be a true faith? Um, yes, because I think that if you're looking at it from a logical perspective and you're saying, this is the best option for me, j just from what you would want to happen. If you could choose any of those four things to be the life, I think, you know, when I went through them, the one with the eternal happiness is a real good option, right? It, because if, if I'm wrong and there is no God and there is no life after this one, then the best we've got is about 100 years. You know, it's like, okay, so you can do what you can with that time, but what does that even really mean? Because then when you die, you don't get to take any of it with you. Whereas if I'm right, I get to take it all with me and, you know, enjoy eternity. So if that is something that's attractive to me and I want to pursue it, I think in that acceptance, even if you don't know how to approach the eternal being that created you right away, just going through the motions then allows you to open up yourself to having those experiences that then deepen your faith. Interesting. It, so it's, in some ways, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of like the people that work hardest are the luckiest because the opportunities are available to them. And in this sense, the people that, you know, work at believing are most likely to find the opportunities for their belief to be fulfilled. Yeah, that's, I wouldn't have said it like that, but that's a, a great way of saying it. Absolutely. Huh. All right, that's the one good thing I've said said this evening. Oh, stop it. <laughs> uh, one thing that I wanted to throw in here, I think it's actually the start of the, near the start of the Christian morality section, is um, C.S. Lewis says, if individuals live only 70 years, then a state, a nation, or a civilization, which may last for a thousand years, is far more important than the individual. But if Christianity is true, then the individual is not only more important but incomparably more important for he is an everlast for he is everlasting and the life of a state or a civilization compared with his is only a moment and so when you think about the the morality that we have that says you know whether it's every life is precious or uh just human lives matter or, or whatever that is when you place it up against uh, a larger entity like a state and you talk about, okay, does a state have the right to violate the human's right to live in order to reach their end goals? I think a, a good person would automatically say, no, it doesn't. You can't do those things that you know take away someone's right to life just for a convenience factor for the state. And when you look at atrocities like what happened in the Soviet Union, that is why that is evil. Um, and I think he raises a good point that that is true as long as we are accepting the fact that we are more than just this lifetime that we have. Um, so I, I interest that was a big part that I highlighted. Did that stick out to you at all? Uh, not until you put it in that way. And it kind of makes me think of like, like you said, uh, Soviet, but also, you know, kind of Marxism and socialism, these ideas that are currently being propagated. And it seems, you know, the conservatives have such a revulsion to it. And it kind of makes sense when you put it in that way that the individual is worth more, especially if, you know, they exist forever. I guess the, the odd thing about that is, you know, is that selfish then? 
I don't know if I'm putting it in the exact way I want to, but to believe the individual is more important than the group is... Yeah, I, don't, I don't find that selfish at all. But tell me more why you asked that. Well, I'm just... I mean, from a mathematical perspective, right? So what if there are... I mean, this is kind of the, you know, the trolley problem. But if there are two christians you know strapped to a, a rail and you have the option to <laughs> to kill one christian instead by changing the rail you know i guess that's kind of a silly argument but <laughs> but but do you get what i'm saying where it's like okay well what about two christians are two christians more important than one christian or h how would that how would that work i i understand that the individual and, and I, I kind of believe this, but I guess it makes more sense to believe it if you believe the individual is everlasting. Um, but isn't there some sort of utilitarian approach, right? Like, well, I, I guess it go, goes into more of more of what he talks about in Christian behavior. And it's probably, you know, if you had to give up your individual life here to save others that you love and care about, you'd probably be acting in the in the best way i yep. i'm probably rambling but i'm putting things together in a weird odd you're, you're trying yeah hey you're, you're trying to to find the the chink in the armor a little bit which is hard to do with someone that is you know c.s lewis talks about it a little bit as well he was not always a christian right so um he had a, a faith journey becoming a christian and in doing so had to answer and think about a lot of the questions that we're, we're talking about here. So he does a good job kind of lining out a lot of the arguments that someone would make against Christianity and then, and then explaining why he doesn't find them to be uh, ultimately compelling. But yeah, I, I definitely understand the, the questioning and, you know, throwing the, the trolley problem at me is, is kind of funny to me, to be honest <laughs> with you, but 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 do you get what I'm saying? Like, are two Christians more important than one Christian? But how do you but how the, do you equate? The two Christians don't have the right then to, um, you know, I impose their tyrannical will on the one because there are more of them. That's that's the point. Is that each individual has the right to aim as as much as they can at, you know, the what their conscience tells them and what God put them on earth to do. So if you are infringing on, you know, that person's right to do whatever it is that he needs to do in order to follow that, then you are doing something that's wrong. Now, do you think that only counts for Christians then? No. Because if there is a, if there's an individual who thinks he is the opposite sex and wants to castrate oneself how i mean should we stop that i mean then we'd be infringing upon their rights and what their conscience conscious belief is to do well from the from the christian perspective in terms of what it means to be right there are you know there is the the body the mind and the spirit and all of them were created by god uh so if you are trying to make a claim maybe that a confused 11 year old should be castrated so that they are able to follow with something they're feeling at that moment. That is not what God's will is for that person because he created them with an actual specific intention. So if he had meant for the man to be a woman, he would have created them a woman, but he created them a man. So there, there are, that's what we call natural law in Christianity that, there are things that we can understand their utility and function by how they were made. Um, and, you know, I think it's quite clear by what we are doing right now in that particular, it's interesting you bring up that issue because that, that's, you know, there are a lot of news stories about that. And we talked about that a little bit in the last episode as well. Um, there's quite a lot going on in that subject recently, you know, from, Two, I think it was, you know, three years ago, there were only two uh, gender transition clinics in the country. And now there's over 300, I just learned uh, recently. Um, 
the reality is that doctors can't do that. Um, all you can, all that's possible is to create a facade of the, the other gender, but there's, there's no way to create out of whole cloth, uh, another, a different reproductive system than the one you're born with. So all you can do is, you know, mutilate and then, um, you know, basically dress up as using other body parts. And that never ends up with a fulfilling, you know, uh, sexual relationship later on in life. You know, there, there's no sexual function when that happens. So um, it's things like that, I think, that really drive people in the culture today to look at the culture and say, how did we end up here? This this clearly doesn't seem like we're, you know, w when you talk about progress, what are we progressing towards? What's the end that we're really excited about aiming at? Uh, and I think that's why there has been quite a bit of revival and interest in Christianity and religion in general because people are looking for sources of truth outside of the, um, you know, I don't want to say hedonism, maybe nihilism, those, those, you know, ideas that have kind of seeped into the mainstream. So another idea that I kind of thought about was if we're talking about individuals' rights when did uh, when did God say eighteen was when individuals have their own rights? <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm really just throwing a stone at this, but it's it's interesting well, because it's it's being discussed right now a lot in in what you were saying. You know when when do people have the rights right to choose for themselves how they want right. to live or in Jewish traditions, the bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah, you know, that's a coming of age, uh, time for, you know, a, a young Jewish person that says, okay, now you're an adult, you can reason, um, as an adult and you should, uh, modern science says that our, uh, prefrontal cortexes don't finish developing until we're 25 years old for men, a little bit earlier for women. Uh, still developing. So good for you. I am not, I'm, I'm as smart as I'll ever get. <laughs> uh, all, all that is to, to say that no, the, we in the United States specifically have done a fairly bad job of converting God's law into actual law, which by the way, is what governments do. All they do is take morality and try to institute it uh into into law that's why we have laws against murder that's why we have laws against rape that's why we have uh laws against indecency in public and things like that it's because we have to have a standard for society and get actually the one that you know god put forward is, is pretty solid and that's why we have in our um in i believe the house of representatives you know where the laws are passed there is a statue of Moses, um, at the, at the top, very, um, prominent in the chamber because he was the original lawgiver, And that is what they are trying to imitate is the, the morality of those types of laws. I think I get that. Um, but I think you, you politicked your way out of, uh, out of, God when? didn't tell us 18. God didn't tell us 18. <laughs> God doesn't tell us. God tells us all to follow. And and so there's, okay, here's, here's well, the actual answer. Here's the actual answer. God tells us that a uh, man is the head of the household. The father is the head of the household. And his job is to protect. So if there is something that may be invading the household as in you know, uh, external threat or internal threat. If, if a child is being, uh, obstinate or doing something that is detrimental to their own life, it is the father's role to step in and say, here is why we don't do that here. <laughs> so the, the reality is no, God doesn't say if it's 18 or 21 or 16, but he does say it's the parent's job to make sure the kid ends up in the right shape when, when he gets, when they get to adulthood, what, wherever that ends up being. And I think there is probably a little bit of, you know, different stages of development for different people. You saw it in, in middle school, some people had oh, yeah. puberty and shot up like weeds and some had to wait two more years before that happened. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just thought it was an interesting uh, path to pursue a little bit. Definitely throwing um, some rocks at me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. You know, being able to, discuss and not hate each other afterwards you know absolutely what everybody absolutely. should strive for 
I agree completely. Having some fun in the in the conversations, yeah. Um, so where where does that leave us? Where are we going next? Well, it is. Uh, we are almost an hour in, and we we haven't we definitely have not hit everything. But no, I don't, I don't know. Are we doing are we doing part one and two? We've gotten through the first little bit. Now we gotta come back mm-hmm. next week and uh, and finish off the discussion. I mean, there's there's still a ton left. I feel like we could discuss. I think so too. Um, I mean, we really have only scraped the the surface. We haven't gotten into any of the virtues. We haven't gotten into the the three person God. We haven't gotten into a lot of the things and the the good infection and yeah, who we are. I mean, I think we have jumped around a little bit, so we've touched on a lot of it. Yes, but yeah. I agree. There's there's still a lot to discuss, uh, and I would hate to put our listeners, you know give them something half baked here. So should we go ahead and, and uh, call it a good place to stop and then come back next week and finish off the discussion? I, I think that's, uh, I think that's reasonable and I might have cool. uh, more stones to throw next time. I might, I might come more loaded. All right. Well, I will fill up my bag better armor. That's for sure. Apparently I'll need it. So I agree. And it's, and it's really hard to, to talk about this. Um, in general, just coming from where both of us come from, I had, you know, 12 years of Catholic schooling and this book isn't a Catholic book, right? He goes, uh, specifically saying that he says, this is, I am only talking about what all Christians should be able to agree on. Um, so there are certain things that, you know, the Catholics would want to talk more about. There are some that the Protestants would want me to talk more about and the Calvinists and blah, blah, blah. Um, but all we are talking about here is, is the very basics, the, you know, the parts of Christianity that are universal. Um, and yeah, I, I agree that there's, there's still plenty to talk about. So uh, bring as many stones as you can, and we will uh, <laughs> see if any of them land. Alrighty. Well, uh, I guess that means we might be doing two episodes back to back instead of, uh, instead of two weeks in between. So I guess uh, look out for that. And uh, thank you all for listening. This has been a great time, and uh, you know, follow us on Instagram. Uh, please like and uh, you know, give us your feedback. What are we doing well? What are we doing wrong? How can we improve? You know, it's it's going to take us many reps to kind of be as good as we want to be, or or at least kind of move towards that. I don't know that we'll ever be as good as we want to be, but definitely not. But give us some feedback. Yeah, let us know what you think. And uh, we look forward to next time. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.